from God's Word and turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. If you don't happen to have a Bible, it will be uh, useful to have one open in front of you, and it will be useful for me if you have one open in front of you as I reference it along the way in our study this morning. So you can grab one of the chairback Bibles that should be in front of you and turn to page 874 where you'll find this morning's text. Uh, Last week, we looked at the first two parables in Luke chapter 15, parable of lost sheep, parable of the lost coin. And I told you that in many ways, Luke chapter 15 represents the gospel within the gospel of Luke. Uh, That for years, scholars and commentators have said Luke chapter 15 represents the center of this entire story of Jesus Christ as told by Luke. And I think you can make a very compelling argument For the parable that we look at this morning, commonly referred to as the parable of the prodigal son in verses 11 through 32, as the epicenter of the entire gospel. It's where you have the main themes of Luke's gospel all come to collide in one visible and visceral and moving portrait. Because this, of course, is probably the most famous parable that Jesus ever spoke. Certainly, I think it's the most well-known. More paintings, writings, dramas, poems, songs have been written, performed, given to the world in light of this parable than any other. And so we want to make it our aim this morning to not only learn its truth, but love the God who's found in it. So let me read our text for us. And then I want to pray briefly for God to bless our study together, and then we will Begin. So listen now as God speaks to you his perfect words of love. And Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many? My father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, Send against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received back from him safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your command, 
Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. And when this son of yours came, who devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And Redeemer Church, what do we believe about God's word? Let us pray together. Father, we confess unto you this morning our weakness. We even confess unto you our weariness. And so we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit among us. That he might do what the Lord Jesus Christ and even you have sent him to do. Which is exalt your son. To convict us concerning matters of righteousness and justice. So illumine the truth of the text before us this morning. That you might be exalted in our lives, that you might be glorified even in our midst as a church body. And Lord, we pray that you would also send the Spirit to help me to proclaim this wonderful truth as I ought, uh, boldly and clearly, with courage and compassion. Help us to hear these words of love as if eternity hangs in the balance, for we know it does. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In June of 2015, I took a seminar, doctoral seminar, on the history and spirituality of 20th century mainline Christianity. And as often happens in such academic gatherings, each student was assigned a particular text in the class and was, ha- was supposed to lead discussion somewhere along that week, facilitate conversation on that particular book. And one of the books that we had to read was something of a 20th century classic written by a, guy, a guy's name of Henri Nouwen, or Henri Nouwen, depending on how you pronounce his name. And the title of it is The Return of the Prodigal Son. It's, it's Nouwen essentially looking at Rembrandt's painting of the parable before us and just meditating on everything it says about the prodigal son and the father who received him in book-length form. And the brother in the class who was leading discussion on this book was only a few minutes into his introduction when he broke down and began to weep. And we were all, you know, watching him and concerned what was going on. And he said, you know, this book saved my life. And as we talked, there's only about six or seven of us in this seminar. We found out that his wife had recently left him to pursue her own sinful desires. His home was torn apart. He was thrown into dark, deep depression, wondering if God was even there. And along comes this book in which a very moving theologian just meditated on the love of the father towards his children as displayed in the parable of the prodigal son. This book, he said, saved my life. And friends, we need to understand when we come to this text this morning, God means to save our lives through the story of what we want to see. Because in ways that we may recognize, ways we may not recognize, each one of us comes into this room this morning bearing burdens. Some of those burdens are easy. Others of them are oppressive. Some of those burdens are known to others. Some of them are secret. Some of those burdens are newfound afflictions in your life. Others seem to be lifelong friends. And I wonder how a sight, 
a moving portrayal, declaration of the Father's love for you in Jesus Christ might release you from and relieve you of these burdens of sin that you carry this morning. Because if you look back at the beginning of our chapter, we need to make sure that we recognize and remember the context for this most famous of parables that we want to look at. If you look at verse 1, we find that Jesus was eating with tax collectors and sinners. And we said last week that those were the lowest groups in the spirituality of that Jewish society of old. And so the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, they come along, you'll notice in verse 2, and, and grumble. We said last week they had PhDs and double majors and complaining spirits. And they, they grumbled about Jesus' having food and, and fellowship with these low groups of people saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And so students, look again at verse 3, as we mentioned last week. What's the first word in verse 3, at least if you have the ESV in front of you? So. Now, something I didn't mention last week is what comes at the end of that first clause. So he told them this parable. But the chapter gives us three parables. But in Jesus' mind, the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son are all telling the same story. It's, it's the simple, glorious truth that God delights to seek the salvation of sinners. And not just that, that heaven rejoices over the salvation of those repentant sinners. And what we come to today is very much the punchline of his teaching to that group of people that are listening to him. So as he is preaching, as he is teaching these parables, or this parable as he says, remember you got these two groups that are listening to him. Tax collectors and sinners. Marginalized, oppressed, dejected groups in society. Sinners on the one hand, they need to be encouraged of God's love for them. But on the other hand, these religious leaders who will not get excited over the repentance of sinful people. And we want to see what God has to say to them this morning. And if you wanted to summarize uh, the text in a simple sentence, you might say simply, God loves to welcome repentant sinners home. God loves to welcome repentant sinners home. So kids, if you noticed as we were reading the text a minute ago, you might have seen there, were three, there are three major characters in this parable. You have the younger son, the father, and the older son. And much less than we actually realize is the parable about the prodigal son, even though that's the title of it. It's ultimately about the father's love, and even as we'll see, the punchline is related to the older brother. So what I want to do as we just walk through this parable this morning is notice the essential truth about each one of those characters. The younger son, the father, and the older son. So first of all, the son who returns. The son who returns. But if he's going to return, he first needs to rebel. So look at verse 12. We're told about this younger son. That he came to his father one day and said, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. Now, if you, you know your book of Deuteronomy well, which you may or may not know terribly well, uh, you know that the firstborn son in the family was due two-thirds of the family's property. The second son was due the other third of the family's property. And this is keeping with common customs at the time. But such reception of property came when the father died. And here is a younger son saying to his father who is living, give me the property. It would have been something akin to a near unforgivable sin in that context of Jewish society. 
It would have brought shame and scorn on the family. It was open disrespect. It was essentially the younger son saying to his father, you're as good to me as dead. In fact, I kind of wish you were dead because then I can have your stuff. I can go make my way in the world. But he doesn't care, does he, about his father's presence. He just wants his father's things. And I want you to see even from the outset here that there is a tendency within confessing Christians in our world to have the same spiritual reality in their hearts, that we love the Father, we say. But if we are honest with ourselves, we love much more what he gives than who he is. Our relationship with God is merely just a means to get something from him rather than to be with him. This young son's estimation of his father's presence wasn't very high. He just wants his stuff. He wants his father dead. So go ahead, dad, and give me what I deserve. Give me what's coming to me, this third of the property, and I'm going to get gone. Now, the dad at this time in Middle Eastern culture would have been well within his respected rights to drive out that disobedient and disrespectful son from his midst with open fists. It would normal. He disowned the family, so I'm going to disown him and kick him to the curb. Or he could have come to the son and said, hey, son, I know you're young, you're earnest, you're eager to make your way in the world, but I had to wait till my dad was lowered into the grave before I got my share of the property and just stick around. Eventually I'm going to die and you can get your share of the property. Or he could have said, hey, if it's money that you're really looking for, if it's possessions that you need, I'll double your allowance. Whatever it is, just stay here. But what does the father do? Look at the end of verse 12. The father divided his property between them. So he does what would have been shocking in that culture. He just gives him what is coming to him. And so you need to see right from the outset, really the first verse of this parable is an echo of the affection that the father has for his children. That he will suffer the agony and the shame himself because of his deep compassion for his own. So I think we can narrate the Continuing story of this younger son in three simple words. The first word is liquidation. Look what hum, comes in verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. So he's liquidated his assets and he's rapidly used up his assets, which leads to the second word, degradation. Because look at verse 14. When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. And I think it's a striking part of Jesus' skill as a storyteller. Because it's not just that he has used up all of his money quickly. It's that that happened right when a famine struck the land in which he was living. So people who were maybe predisposed to help him, to give him financial aid. We're in their own financial dire, financial straits and couldn't help him. So he is totally, picture the younger son at this moment, totally alone, desperate, utterly lost in a far country. And some of you have heard of a period of life in the Amish culture known as Rumspringa. It's basically, in popular portrayals at least, a year-long period of time in which Amish teenagers are allowed to just kind of leave the closed community in which they were raised and born, and then they go into the world to just kind of taste the goodness and the fullness of what's out there. And then after the close of Rumspringa, they either decide to permanently leave 
that closed community, or as we're told most do, after tasting the vices and the sins of the world, they come back to the closed community and are baptized into the church, and there they stay for the rest of their life. And in popular conception, I do think, people think of this prodigal son's journey into a far land, liquidating his assets, being degraded to a, a deep degree as something of his own version of Rumspringa, as just kind of learning the ways of the world and seeing that there's nothing that it can promise him. But actually, it's far worse than that in that original context. For look at verse 15. And he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. Okay, right? That makes sense. He's going to go get work because he needs money. But if you put on your thinking cap for a moment, kids, ordinary Jews are listening to him. What's his job? To feed pigs. One rabbi at the time said, Cursed is the man who breeds swine. This is a symbol of the depth of his cursing to a Jewish person. He is utterly cursed, destitute, and alone. To such a degree, he's feeding swine. It's his job. It's like a waiter to the pigs, children. He brings them their breakfast, their lunch, and their dinner. And he is so desperate for food. Do you notice what verse 16 says? He wants their leftovers. He wants to eat the pig's food. This is his cursed state in his lostness. And verse 16 shows just how far degraded he really is. And no one gave him anything. A young son went out wealthy, is now found in a skeletal form, skin and bones, hungry, desiring to eat the leftovers of pigs. Surely he looks dirty, emaciated, not someone on which you would think used to come from a wealthy family. And so we get to the third word in his story, resignation. Look at verse 17 through 19. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your servants. For a son in such a state to return home, the society's expectation was more than just a mere apology. He was going to have to make restitution for everything that he lost. And you notice this child, this young son's plan is quite specific. He knows exactly what he's going to say. He knows exactly what he's going to do to try to get back into his father's good graces. And so you want to think about this resignation coming from the younger son at this moment as this is his means by which he's going to earn his way back into the family because he thinks he can, such as the liquidation that he took, the degradation that he experienced, and now the resignation of his own heart. This is the son who returns. And as he goes home, he finds the father who receives. One of the most influential Christian thinkers, at least in the English-speaking world of the last 50 years, is a guy named Nicholas Wolterstorff, who is a philosopher at Yale University. In the early 80s, one of his children died in a tragic mountain climbing accident. And Wolterstorff wrote a book about his subsequent experience of grief called Lament for a Son. And somewhere along the way, I can't remember if it was in the book or an interview about the book, he, he said, no longer refer to me as, you know, this philosopher or, or this thinker or this influencer in academia. 
Refer to me as the father who has lost his son. So deep was his grief. And some of you are in here today and you know that pain of losing a child. Maybe it's in miscarriage. Maybe it's in their adolescence. Maybe it's in their adulthood. And if you can understand that experience, you understand the father in this parable. I have lost a son. And so when the son comes back, as we'll see in just a minute, it's the language of the dead coming to life. You can understand the joy we're getting ready to experience. A joy displayed in the fact that this father is getting ready to run to his child. Because in that Jewish culture, children were allowed to run. Of course, they were expected to run. Women would even run around in Jewish society. But no self-respecting Jewish man would ever run lift up his robes, expose his legs, and show himself undignified before a watching society. But look at what this father does in verse 20. The son arises and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Uh, The tense there for kissing, he's, he's continually kissing his son. You can surely imagine the joy that this father has. The turning of his guts is even what the word compassion portrays in the original language. So deep is his affection. And so kids, if you want to think about God's love, according to this passage, its movement and its action, just just say three words. God's love runs. No wall can stop it. No enemy can defeat it. No government can control it. No force can resist it. No scheme can thwart it. God's run loves and it can't be stopped. And how are you going to know even that God's run or God's love runs? Well, the Bible says, look to the cross of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter five. But God showed his love for us in that while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John chapter four. God's love was made manifest among us, shown among us that he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God's love runs and it even interrupts. Look at what happens in verse 21. His son, he probably all the way home is rehearsing this speech, you know, these words of of repentance that he's going to say to his father and he, he begins his speech. Look in verse 21, the son said to his father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And then it stops. Why? Because the father interrupts him. What does he say? He cries to his servants, verse 22, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. Son, you don't have to earn your way back into this family. You don't have to earn your way into this family. This best robe would have clearly been the father's robe. It is his wealth. It is his resources that are welcoming welcoming the younger son back into this family. It's not anything that he's going to do to earn his way back in. It's not anything he's going to perform to make restitution for what he has lost. He is just welcomed in. Why? Look at verse 24. For this my son was dead. And is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Such a vivid picture of the reality of our sinful hearts before God. 
dead sinners now made alive. Nothing they can do to enter into the Father's house. Only His love and grace bestowed upon them freely and fully welcomes them in to the Father's presence. You can't earn it, but you can receive it. If you but turn from your sin and trust in Him, this is the Father who receives. Now, many people, as we've often thought about this parable, seem to think it ends there. That the punchline has already come. But it's yet to come. Because Jesus is truly speaking to that religious audience. The Pharisees and the scribes that were in his hearing. And so we end not with the son who returns or the father who receives, but with the son who refuses. In verse 25 through 32. One of my favorite preachers once preached a sermon on this text titled, The Parable of the Presbyterian Son. With a fair amount of tongue in his cheek, I think he was metaphorically saying there's something true about our Presbyterian history that seems to embody some of the elder brothers, the older sons' characteristics and qualities. But he also is striking literally, because you notice in verse 25, the word older is just the Greek word presbyteros, from which we get Presbyterianism, which just means elder. So you could actually somewhat literally say, now his Presbyterian son was in the field. And as he came near and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So set the scene with me, kids, students. Think about this. You have a brother who has left home. We don't know how long he's been gone. He has has finally returned. The father has delighted in him, run out to meet him, exposing himself to public indignity and shame, but is now welcoming the entire society around him to rejoice in his son's return because he's taking the fattened calf, and this is for all the community it would have been, to join in the celebration as well. So the older son, he's out in the field, he's working, he hears all of this commotion going about, and so he speaks to one of the family servants and says, hey, what's, what's the deal? What's all this noise and, and merriment? Happening, And so look at verse 27. The servant says, your brother has come. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. He's received your brother back safe and sound. What's the older brother's heart towards his family? Look at verse 28. But he was angry and refused to go in. He is in his corner of complaint outside. He will have no part in this party. And we want to ask the question, why? So students, that's always the great question to ask of Scripture oftentimes. Why? Why does this elder son, this older brother, not want to go in? Well, look at the answer he gives when his father comes out and entreats him in verse 29. And even before you get to his words, the son's words in verse 29, you see, of course, that his father is coming outside the house once again. So he ran outside the house to find the younger son. And it was an act of love and grace and compassion. Here he goes quietly to entreat another son who is also lost, alienated from the family. And he comes to him quietly in his complaining corner outside to say, come back in. Join this feast. But the older brother is upset. Look at verse 29 and 30. Look, dad, these many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours come, came home, 
who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. So students, if you look at those verses again, what does it seem like he's immediately upset about? I never got a goat. You never gave me a goat, Dad. He gets the fattened calf. I didn't get this goat to eat, to enjoy, to celebrate with my friends. And he gets the big prize. Of course, underneath that is something more spiritual, isn't it? It's in the phrase of verse 29. I never have disobeyed your commands. I never have transgressed your law. So put yourself in the elder brother's shoes at this moment. Dad, you got to understand something. I've always obeyed you. I've always honored this family. I've never done anything wrong. And you haven't done anything for me. And he did everything wrong. And he gets the best of the gifts. Where's the fairness in that? And that's exactly what these self-righteous Pharisees and scribes are thinking. They haven't obeyed the law perfectly. They haven't kept God's commands earnestly. And they get to eat with the Messiah? Where's the true justice in that? Of course, we ought to be thankful, shouldn't we? That God's notions of fairness don't match our own. For we, of course, don't want what we deserve. We can't earn our way into his family. We can't welcome ourselves through our own obedience into his good graces. What we deserve is, of course, death. So everything ultimately must always and only be by sovereign grace. So it's why the father says what he says. Notice verse 31. Son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting. Even the Greek would say more literally, it is necessary to celebrate and be glad for this, your brother. And notice, the older brother, he didn't use those words. He said, this son of yours has squandered the riches. But the father now says, this, your brother, was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the son who refuses Not long ago, one of my sisters sent me one of those online personality tests which ask you questions and matters of interest and ability to show that you really are this character in the Harry Potter series or you really are this character in the Lord of the Rings series or whatever book, story, television show or movie is popular at the time. Which character are you? And Luke chapter 15 has that kind of mirror-like function in Jesus' teaching. Which character are you? So as we begin to close, I just want to ask, which character are you? So are you like the younger son lost in the far country of sin? Are you like the younger son lost in the far country of sin? Pursuing the world's pleasures, power and prestige, place of prominence. Pursuing everything that this fleeting world can give you by way of joy and happiness. Or maybe you've realized and you're considering how empty such things are. Wondering, would would the Father receive me? Would the Lord Jesus Christ have someone like me? And the picture of God's love for you in this text is a father running down the way 
to lift you up in his arms of loving embrace. That's God's love for the younger sons. Are you secondly more like the older son, lost in the near country of self-righteousness? Sin can often have the same stench of a pigsty in a church pew. Just because you're closer doesn't mean you're actually in. This brother's not in, the older brother, is he? He's on the outside. He's alienated, not reconciled from the family, all because what is he trusting in? His own ability to welcome himself into his father's good graces. Maybe you are like this Presbyterian son. What's the picture of God's love for you? The father comes out quietly and entreats with you, come, join the feast. The celebration of salvation is going on. Won't you come in? And one of the more striking phrases, I think, that's found in this parable is in verse 31, that last phrase where the father says, all that is mine is yours. And perhaps you have not recognized just how true that statement is. All that is mine, son, it's yours. Okay? The younger brother's portion of the inheritance, that third, has already been used up. So everything left there in the family, who does it belong to ultimately? That older brother. So ultimately, whose robe is it that is needed to clothe the nakedness of the younger brother? Whose resources are it ultimately that are going to be used to celebrate the younger brother's return? It's what belongs to the older brother, and he doesn't want to give it. And the striking thing, maybe most striking thing about this parable is we don't know what happened with the older brother, do we? Jesus stops right there. He stops short, doesn't he? We know the younger son came back, but we don't know what the older son did. It's because he's leaving it on this kind of cliffhanger note for those self-righteous religious people listening to that parable originally. Are you going to come in? Are you going to rejoice? Maybe it's even teasing out for us the need that we do have for a true and better elder brother whose name is Jesus Christ, who possessed every power, every Wealth, all the riches of the universe in heaven. And what did he do? He gave them away to save lost and weary sinners. Those who were dead that they might come alive. Those who were lost that they might be found. And how did he do it? He was born of a virgin named Mary. He lived the perfect life of obedience. He died on the cross as the perfect, precious substitute for sinners like you and me, rising again three days later to conquer sin, Satan, and death, ascending on high into heaven, having paid the penalty, having purchased redemption, having paid the ransom for sinners. He is the elder brother who gives all away gladly in order to save lost souls. The question then for us at the end is quite an open-ended one, isn't it? Do you know this love of Jesus Christ that gives away all for the salvation of sinners and gladly delights in their coming home for God loves to welcome sinners home? Let's pray together. Father, we want to confess even before you now that we have too small of a view 
of your unending love for us. We know it is immense. We know it is great. But some of us in here this morning may not fully experience its glory and beauty. So help us to do that today, we pray, by your Spirit. To know that your love runs that it delights to embrace lost sinners, those who are in the far country, those who are in the near country, to welcome them into the feast. So help us, we pray, to partake of it with hearts of faith and repentance. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.